Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen. And sometimes we bring a recording of Henry himself. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to reach our spiritually hungry world with Henry's writings, his encouragement, and of course, his reminder that each of us is a beloved child of God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Pastor and Christianity Today award-winning author, Rich Volatis, offers a spiritually formative guide to help Christians receive and walk in authentic healing and wholeness in the midst of a fractured world. He's written a wonderful new book called Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. Let me say right off the top, this book has just been what I needed. I loved it. It has spoken deeply to me. Rich, thank you for being with us today. So good to be with you, Karen. Thanks for the kind invitation. Rich, you say that hostility, rage, and offense is the language of our fractured culture and world. How did we lose the goodness, kindness, and beauty we long for? Yeah, you know, when I think about that, uh, the book that I wrote emerged out of a poem from the great African-American poet Langston Hughes. And uh, Hughes wrote a poem entitled Tired, in which he said, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. And what Hughes does in that poem is he names the longing of our soul for beauty, for goodness, for kindness. But then he realizes that there's some worms beneath the surface, under under the rind that we must attend to. And I think in many ways, what I'm trying to do, at least theologically and from a spiritual formation perspective, is to ask the question that you just asked, what has disrupted goodness and beauty and without being overly simplistic around it, I do think there are a couple of powers uh, related to sin, uh, related to the powers and principalities in our world, and our inability as a result to hold space with one another, to become curious with one another, present with one another. Uh, and so those are a few of the introductory remarks I have in terms of why has this not been our reality? Uh, I think theology can help us here. You have a phrase you use, uh, that, that sin is curving us inward. What, what is that phrase mm-hmm. that you take from Augustine? Yeah, there's a phrase that Augustine, you know, and I, I read it a number of years ago, and, and, and I, I, I never forgot it the first time I heard it. He calls it that sin is about being in curvatus in se, that is to be curved in on oneself. And uh, on, on some levels, uh, to be curved in on oneself can be good if it is leading to proper introspection and interior examination that ultimately leads to love. Uh, but the kind of uh, incurvitude and say to be curved in on oneself that Augustine uh, writes about is really more about uh, centering ourselves, uh, seeing ourselves as the beginning and the end. Love is no longer prioritized. Actually, as a matter of fact, worship of God is no longer prioritized. We become the center of the universe. And when we are caught in that way, his, he argues that that is the essence of sin, not simply that we're just missing a mark morally, but that we are curved in on oneself 
leading, uh, leaving no space for God and no space for our neighbor uh, in, in ways that are actually marked by love and kindness and justice and goodness. It's interesting to me because I, I felt like one of the things you put your finger on is that sin's not just the violation of laws, like mm. doing something wrong, something morally wrong. But it is really the disruption of love, the failure to love. I found that, like, you really hammer in on that point for me. Yeah, you know, uh, it hit me one day as I was just uh, writing and, and, and reading the Gospels that Jesus prioritizes the commandment. He said the greatest commandment to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor uh, as yourself. And I just began to sit with that age-old teaching of Jesus for some time. And I began to think if, if, if love is the greatest commandment or if the greatest commandment is rooted in love, then sin must be failure to do this great command or the greatest command. Or, or the essence of sin is the failure to love, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And what that did for me was, uh, Karen, it helped me to situate sin, I think, in a way that was more consistent with how Jesus thought of it. It's very easy to think about sin in privatized, um, morally scrupulous uh, categories. And I believe in uh, uh, integrity being who you are in private is who you are in public, uh, and that our, 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 our thinking life, our interior life is so important. But it's very easy to have all the things right, morally speaking, to obey all the laws so to speak, and still fail at following Jesus and living out that command because it's not flowing from a place of love. And um, I think that's the essence of sin, to be curved in on oneself, uh, which ultimately leads to uh, the failure to love well. In your book, you don't hesitate to start out by looking at sin. I mean, you look, <laughs> you kind of go there, you start there and say, okay, here's the reality. I was so grateful to see the title on the book because we are living in a fractured time. Somehow it feels like it's gotten worse instead of better in our world. But who do you think is the unseen enemy in all of this? Yeah, you know, um, when I write about that, I I talk about the language of powers and principalities. And it's really drawn out of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, I came from a church tradition, a Pentecostal church tradition. That's where I I became a Christian at, uh, that has a way of uh, emphasizing uh, sometimes to a fault, uh, evil spiritual powers. Uh, but what I think should be retained in that emphasis is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, that there's actually um, an enemy, an unseen enemy, that we don't battle against, this is Paul's language, flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities. And, and, and these principalities are these, these, these forces that get entrenched in uh, individuals, uh, ideologies, and institutions uh, that lead to uh, deception, depersonalization, uh, and division. And whether we're talking about church institutions, whether we're talking about something like social media, whether we're talking about church, whether we're talking about various ideologies, there's something at work in the world that we often can't put our finger on in terms of the source of it. And it's very easy in our society to uh, point the finger and say, this is what's wrong with the world. And this is who's responsible for uh, the place that the world is in right now. 
And I, I do think we all have uh, need to be accountable for our decisions that we make, especially those in high positions of leadership. But I think what Paul does in the New Testament is he helps us to see that there's also things that we cannot see with our eyes uh, that is at work in the world. And this is not to, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about there's two uh, equal and opposite errors that uh, people fall uh, as it pertains to demons, that one is to disbelieve in their existence and the other is to have uh, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And we're not trying to go either way, but we're trying to recognize, or at least I'm trying to recognize, that when you look at some of the evil in the world, uh, the only answer sometimes I have is that there's something else going on in the world uh, that we cannot see with our eyes. Well, what do you think defeats evil if it's, if it's there? What can defeat it? Well, you know what? I, I think this is where Paul is really helpful, actually, in the book of Ephesians, because uh, when, when he writes about the battle that we have, he, he then talks about the kind of life, the kind of armor of God uh, that we are to have our lives identified by. And I, I think uh, ultimately evil is defeated, particularly in the way of Jesus, through love. I, I think love is the way that evil is ultimately uh, conquered. Without love, uh, evil us trying to deal with evil in its own terms will ultimately lead to us using uh, the weapons of the world, which just perpetuates more evil. Uh, but uh, love, this is the nature of the cross, isn't it? That uh, as Jesus is being uh, crucified, uh, he, he speaks out from the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And in his death and in his vindicating resurrection, uh, we see that evil, which is not fully destroyed at the moment, but we've gotten a foretaste of it. We've gotten us a snapshot that um, this is ultimately how evil will be defeated. Uh, it is through love. But at the same time, I think evil is also pushed back, Karen, through through truth. You know, when, when, when Paul talks about putting on the belt of truth, that our lives are to be marked by honesty, our lives to be marked by living in reality. Uh, when we concern ourselves with the work of righteousness and, and justice, when we become people who are marked by peacekeeping um, and, and making peace, rather, uh, I think these are the ways that evil, uh, whereas it might not be defeated per se, but it gets pushed back in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, um, and in the world around us. But it's no easy feat before us, but I do think we have some guidance from the scriptures, from the life of Jesus and from Paul, about how evil is ultimately pushed back and defeated. I love the way you use the expression suffering love. Evil is, is defeated by suffering love, and that's, that's uh, the quality of Christ's love that lo stands before us and, and calls us forward into a love that doesn't exactly put bounds on itself and says, I, I've done I've done my part now you do your part kind of let's let's mm -hmm. but it goes way 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 beyond that you address what gets in the way of our loving well and I I think this is where it began to kind of unravel me because you you address the fact that there are things in our own lives that get in the way of us loving well and by the way mm -hmm. I will have to say to our listeners if you're going to read this book which is an excellent book Rich keeps pulling us back to love in a way you know good and beautiful and kind keeps pulling us back to how love works itself out in every part of our lives has to work itself out if we're going to be like Jesus but what I wanted to say was you 
you do not say, okay, well, then just go ahead and love. You, you talk about what gets in the way of loving well. Yeah. And, and, and I appreciated that. And some of that was wounds and some of it was trauma. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, you know, um, if there's anyone who should have language for trauma, uh, it, it should be people who are trying to take seriously the teachings of Jesus. Because, um, you know, Christians confess that Jesus is the wounded one. Uh, and that's what, that's what trauma means. It means to wound. And I think because of the nature of trauma, we live in a very wounded, wounded and wounding world, uh, you know, to, to, talk, to, to talk about now. And, you know, we're not just, we're not wounded healers. We're often wounded wounders. And because of our wounds that have been received, uh, you know, there was a 1950 psychiatrist named D.W. Winnicott who mentioned there's really two kinds of traumas that we experience. It is things that happen that should not have happened and things that did not happen that should have happened. You know, attunement, love from our parents, uh, a safe space when you are hurt. Often many people grow up without getting those things. And as a result, we find ourselves emotionally stunted, relationally incapable uh, to, to live out relationships marked by vulnerability and love uh, and care. And it's because of the things that we've carried often from childhood into adulthood, we don't know how to show up in the world in ways that are marked by healing. And so what I've tried to do, and much of this emerges out of my own life, Karen, I've tried to identify what are the things that have happened that should not have happened? And what are the things that did not happen that should have happened? And as I've done inventory in my own soul and identify the impact of those things, what I found is I, I find myself living in reality more. And reality is the only place where God dwells. And to the degree that I'm able to identify, these are the things that have hindered me, the wounds that have hindered me. And now I can open myself up to God's grace and to God's love and to God's healing. But I do think trauma uh, which in recent years is becoming uh, more uh, mainstream, it seems. People become more trauma-aware and trauma-sensitive. And I think this is a good thing. But more than anything, I think it's good because uh, Christians follow a traumatized and risen Savior who understands the wounds that we carry. And I just think it's an important category formationally, uh, spiritually, emotionally, if we're going to be people marked by love and wholeness. I love there's a quote in here that uh, caught my eye. Facing the truth about ourselves and opening that part of our lives to God are imperative because God dwells only in reality. So in a sense, we don't have to hide that stuff, that stuff that uh, we're stumbling over or has happened to us or didn't happen. As you pointed out, sometimes it's what didn't happen, what was left out that wasn't wasn't there and, and would have made us healthier human beings, more capable of loving if it had been there. Uh, how has Henry Nouwen impacted you? It, you know, you mentioned wounded healers, and I'm just curious. Yes. I, I think I got this little note saying that he'd been one of the great influences in your life. I'd just love to hear, what did you find in Henry that was valuable for you? Karen, I, I wish I had three hours to talk about this here. <laughs> uh, and it is hard to truly estimate the impact that he's had on my life. I, I've been reading the works of Nowen, uh, I want to say, for 24 years now. I'm 43 years old. I was introduced to Nowen uh, as a 20-year-old. Uh, 
mm. uh, at, at a class at a college that I had, and, and I was given the assignment to read uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And when I read The Return of the Prodigal Son, I was so taken aback by what I was reading. It was more than just an assignment. It was an encounter. And as I read, finished that book, I went to the school library and said, what else has this guy, who is this person, number one, and what else has he written? And from that point on, I, uh, I think by the time I was 23, 24, I had probably read at least 10 to 12 of his works. Hmm. And from that point on, the reason why he's impacted me is he, from the very beginning, I understood Christianity to be one that must be marked by brokenness and vulnerability. Uh, I, and I saw that in his life and what I read. Uh, his ability, because his work in psychology, this ability to integrate psychology and spirituality has made a big uh, impact on my life and has formed many ways how I think about pastoring. Uh, his love for the poor, uh, his, his work on justice and his words on justice and peacemaking uh, were truly important in my life. Uh, a new way as, of thinking about success. You know, what is success uh, as, as followers of Jesus? What is true success in the world? Uh, and so when I think about all those things, and, and then I, I think perhaps the thing that impacted me most was, as I've, I've read his biography, you know, autobiographies and things that his friends has written about him, uh, Marjorie Thompson, who I know has been on your podcast, uh, Marjorie, who is a friend of uh, Henry, uh, was has been to our church and spoken there. So I've had lengthy conversations with her, uh, and she would talk about her experience with him as well as other friends. And just to hear about the anxiety he carried, the the frenetic pace of life that he often lived, uh, yeah. the ways that he found himself uh, experiencing loneliness, and the ways he would name that. I found so much freedom in his authenticity and vulnerability that, uh, yes, he can be so deep and thoughtful in his ways and still be wrestling with these things in a profound way. And so um, for, for that, for those reasons and many others, um, that's why he's meant so much to me over the, over the last few decades. Oh, I, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. I, I am delighted, really. It's interesting. Um, I think uh, Henry, in his ability to be honest about what he was battling with, frees up so many people to feel yes. me too that's me i can understand that and yes. and uh and and that that level of honesty it, it really helps us move into a kind of different mm-hmm. level of intimacy with god i think because we're no longer bringing our false self into that we we can bring the real us the real person yes. that is so uncertain and uh Henry's a treasure. I agree. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And I come back to, I come back to his journals, his writings on a regular basis. So uh, when the idea to join this conversation came, I said, I'll do it at any time of the day because oh. of the importance of uh, his leadership and his writing in my life. Well, I wondered if by chance through Henry, if that's what pointed you in the direction of the Desert Fathers, because I found it very interesting, your whole yeah. understanding of prayer and contemplative prayer. And I know from myself, even coming out of a uh, more of an evangelical background, uh, finding that is very, very strengthening. Tell me a little bit about how prayer, I mean, it weaves into this book. So tell us a bit about the role of prayer and what you have, what you want to share with others. Yeah. And you just named it, Karen, because when I read The Way of the Heart, because again, I was in the library, 
finding out what else has this man written. And then I read The Way of the Heart. And, you know, here I am, I'm a 20, 21-year-old, and I start hearing the language of desert fathers. So I'm thinking, who are these people? And from that point on, I started immersing myself in the writings of Thomas Merton, as well as those in the desert tradition. And um, uh, the contemplative prayer for me, uh, I believe, is the starting point for a world that's going to be marked by love and wholeness. Because in contemplative prayer, uh, we move beyond seeing prayer as transactionalism to seeing it as the place of communion. It's the place where we experience communion with God for the sake of experiencing communion with one another. And so in contemplative prayer, the goal is not to throw out our laundry list of all the things that we need God to do. And I believe there's a place in time for that. I believe that there's a time to lift our requests, our petitions, our hurts before God. Uh, I believe we should be doing that absolutely. And I think those things emerge out of being with God. It is being with being. It's being present to present. It's, it's, it's friendship with Jesus. It's, it's recognizing our uh, relationships as daughters and sons of the living God. Uh, and and contemplative prayer really is about the, the training of the soul to be present. Uh, you know, when I sit down to pray, I often set a timer for 5, 10, 15 minutes or so. And I usually have a very simple phrase on my heart, a phrase like, Jesus, here I am. And whenever my mind gets distracted, I come back to that phrase, Jesus, here I am. And when I do it, uh, I'm doing it with the intention to do God's will uh, uh, and not just do God's will in terms of my own individual decision, but ultimately to do God's will as it relates to love. Uh, I want to be present to my neighbor in the way that I'm present to God. And so contemplative prayer over the years has been so important in terms of my own formation. And what people are discovering now in recent years is the impact that this kind of prayer has on our brains, the neurology of it the ways that our brains are rewired, the impact it has on our emotional life. And so contemplative prayer has been so important for me in that respect. It's, it's training me to love God and to love my neighbor well. You know where you kind of caught me in the book, where I, I actually got stopped and went, okay, I'm, I'm reading this part slowly because it's so to me. And it was beyond the walls of false self. Yeah. I found myself there and I went, oh my goodness, this is very much about lowering all our defenses I can tend to be so defensive and instead and I'm defending the false self would you talk a little bit about this because I just found this so rich and uh challenging yeah you know what I was trying to and Karen I I mean just say amen to you because uh this is my struggle this is why I wrote it because I I really have specialized uh in fragility uh and defensiveness (laughs) Uh, I, I, I listen, I've gotten a, many, multiple degrees in this year. Uh, and, and so I, what I try to do is rethink what is humility. Uh, and uh, it's often the case that humility is defined as, you know, uh, someone who's, who does the lowly task. And so mm-hmm. humility is often task oriented. Uh, the person who is cleaning the toilets or the person who is uh, you know, taking the, the low rung of whatever. And, and I do think that, it, that is an important element of humility that must be retained. 
But what I try to do is look at humility from an angle of it's not just doing the lowly task. It's about the hard work of lowering our defenses. And so in this respect, I've tried to connect humility with poverty of spirit, poverty of spirit. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, I, I believe that's also language, not just recognizing our ultimate dependence upon God, but recognizing that there is nothing to prove, nothing to possess, nothing to protect. That the essence of a poor in spirit life is a life that is free from those things, which really is ultimately the way of the false self. The false self has lots to protect, the false self has lots to prove, and the false self has lots to possess. The true self doesn't need to prove, possess, or to protect. And so uh, one of the ways that humility works itself out is in our ability to lower our defenses, particularly in conflict particularly when we are experiencing criticism, uh, resistance. Uh, and this is something I've had to learn over and over again, to see these things, conflict, criticism, as invitations to become more whole, as invitations to become more like Jesus. Uh, and yet this is a very difficult task because my life tends to be very fragile. Uh, and so I feel like this is, I know, I don't just feel it. I know this is a lifelong work, but what I've discovered, Karen, in the process of trying to prayerfully integrate this in my life is it's not that I don't experience fragility anymore, or if I don't experience defensiveness, just ask my wife, she'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I don't think it has had the same power it's had over me. Uh, in the past, whenever I got criticized, it would often take a number of days for me to recover. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I get a, an email from someone uh, who didn't like my sermon or uh, a critique. It would take me days. I would, I would just be so absorbed in the words that I heard. And now it's not that I don't get absorbed in it, but I, I, I do think I'm able to wrestle with it a little bit more, externalize it a little bit more. Uh, and become a bit more curious as well, that when people have criticism or there is conflict, uh, I've been asking God to help me to actually be more curious in that respect. So, uh, But I, I, I imagine this is a lifelong work that will never end uh, until I see Jesus face to face. It's interesting because you knew, you do say that if you're going to have a life that's marked by goodness, beauty, and kindness— it does not mean it's not going to be without conflict. And conflict, <laughs> learning how, I, I love how you, yeah. you know, you go there and, and, and deal with the idea of what it is to deal with conflict in a mature fashion, uh, yeah. which I found really challenging. I, I appreciate it. Um, but even calling us to the culture of healthy speaking, you know, in other words, it, it was like toward the end of the book, you were just kind of giving us really healthy tools that are clearly maybe you've had to put them in place in your own life so you can share them. Um, that's what I found there uh, that I found very helpful. Yeah, specifically with conflict, I, I, this is something as, as a pastor um, of a, a very diverse congregation. I, I pastor a church in Queens, New York City, where 75 nations are represented uh, in an area where 123 languages are spoken. National Geographic has called our neighborhood zip code the most diverse zip code in the world. Wow. And so when you get that many different people in close proximity to each other, 
there's going to be lots of conflict. I mean, we, we have conflict with people who look just like us uh, and, and vote like we do and see the world like we do. Uh, imagine uh, a context like the one that I have the privilege of pastoring in. And so I, we, I've had to uh, think a lot and try to work through it myself and, and disciple others to work through conflict. And what I've discovered, first and foremost, Karen, is um, giving people language to understand the normal nature of human conflict. Uh, that uh, I often think of it in three stages. There's this heavenly stage of relationships that everything is so wonderful all the time, and it's usually at the beginning of a relationship, which is why when someone comes to my church for the first time, uh, and, and they're just talking about how this is the best church ever, and they've never experienced anything like this church, and sometimes I wonder, how long have you been here? And they say, you know, I've been here two, two weeks. And I go, well, just stick around. I think we're a great church, but stick around because uh, we have just as many problems like anyone else. But what happens is because people tend to live in the world of romanticism and idealism, and because they, they think this is what it is, when, when conflict comes, when difficulty comes, when disagreements come, the, the pendulum often swing so drastically where it's no longer a heavenly stage it's a hellish stage and no longer are people angels but everyone they're demons now uh and what i tried to do is go to the third stage and help people go to the holding detention stage that we're we're not, we're not angels we're not demons this is not heaven this is not hell uh but we're somewhere in between and we have to learn how to more than anything negotiate and navigate our differences uh, but that's no uh, small task. So, um, but I, I don't know how we move towards wholeness without the language of healthy conflict and practices to do so. You know, I, I would like to go on and on and on, but there's something in your book I do not want us to miss, and that's your whole understanding of justice. Let's talk about that. I mean, I felt like you, you treat it with lots of light, but I, I want to hear... Why is justice important to God? How does it connect to God? What's it look like? Yeah, when I think about justice, I think about something the philosopher Cornell West said, and it's one of my favorite ways to think about justice. He said that justice is what love looks like in public. Justice mm -hmm. is what love looks like in public. And uh, when I read that, I thought, that's exactly it. This is exactly it. It's often the case... Um, particularly in, in the West, especially in the United States, that uh, justice is seen through the lens of rights and kind of retribution. Like you get, you're going to pay for what you did mm -hmm. or rights. Like this is, uh, you know, th these are my freedoms. These are my rights. Don't infringe upon these things. And I think we need to have conversations along those lines. And, and I think that's part of the conversation of justice. But for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, for the person who's trying to take seriously the words of Jesus, which is why uh, the works of and have impacted me so much, because just like uh, Henry, he had language for love being expressed interpersonally, and not just interpersonally, but institutionally as well. Mm -hmm. And I think in this respect, Jesus, um, Jesus is in the line of Hebrew prophets who saw love and justice uh, to be two sides of the same coin. And whether we're talking about the poor, the widows, the orphans, whether we're talking about refugees, whether we're talking about immigrants, 
whether we're talking about people who are oppressed in society. Uh, the reason why justice is important is because love must be externalized. Love must be systematized. Uh, love must be prioritized. Uh, and, and so when I think about justice, I'm not thinking about it primarily through the lens of our rights. And again, I think those are that's an important category for another time. But I do think it's about right relationship and how that right relationship is actually embodied into the very structures and institutions of our world. And whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about uh, government, whether we're talking about criminal justice, whether we're talking about the church, uh, justice is too big of a value for God for us to make it uh, a footnote to our spirituality and to our life with God. It, it, it is truly what, what love looks like in public. That's the nature of justice. One of the quotes in your book says, God is not just doing justice, but his very essence is justice. Yeah. And I love that. And it is such a call for all of us, particularly in a time when we feel like we're in a, a very fractured world where people mm. find themselves positioned uh, one side or the other. I think it's very important to understand the nature of God and not mm. position God differently than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I also love there's a line in your book about not naming the problems without pursuing the solutions. I, that just spoke to me. I thought, <laughs> yes, got to name the problems, but then pursue the solutions. Be part of the ongoing process of bringing justice in all the situations yeah, we yeah. can see. Yeah, it's easy to name the problems, Karen. I'm really good at that, too. <laughs> uh, but, it, but actually responding with creativity and a kind of social imagination towards justice, that's the hard work that very few people want to do. You know, one of the things that was very touching to me within the book, and I, 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 I want to go back, it's just a little bit, but it, it was about dealing with things calmly. I mean, it was really interesting, but yeah. you kind of spoke about a kind of calm attentiveness. Maybe just explore that a little bit with me, because I think we're so quick to position ourselves. And what does it look like to be kind of a mature, loving human being in this world? Yeah, you know, when I talk about calm presence, uh, another way of thinking about this is through the, the language of what family system theorists call self-differentiation. And uh, by that, uh, calm presence for me, as I think about it, is remaining close and curious to God, close and curious to myself, and close and curious to my neighbor, especially in times of high anxiety, and resisting the polar opposite pull of cutting people off or being enmeshed into them. And uh, calm presence is a life exactly that. It's, it's curious. It's, it's close. It, it is a recognition that I have particular values that mean a great deal to me, but also that people around me have values that mean a great deal to them. And the ways that we respond in our cultural moment right now is not through calm presence, it's through reactivity and emotionality. And it, it's fueled out of anxiety. Uh, and so what we have is an anxious life. And, and anxiety, very simply, it's not necessarily, um, uh, you know, feelings of worry or overwhelming feelings of concern. Uh, you know, that, that includes that. But anxiety is about this, this automatic response within us that's based on a real or perceived threat. And I think calm presence is what we're invited into. When I look at Jesus in the Gospels, I see calm presence. I see all kinds of 
uh, conflicts, all kinds of anxious situations. I mean, he, there's a storm and he's sleeping on a boat. Uh, he, you know, there are people around him, religious leaders who don't like what he's doing, and he, he asks questions. Uh, and so what we find in the life of Jesus is someone, and this is why it's connected to humility, Karen, because I don't know if we can live a calm presence without cultivating humility. Uh, because we're, our defenses will be too high. But once the defenses come down a bit, it's to lead to curiosity and to emotional closeness. And that's the hope. That, and, and this is something that I, in a given week, I succeed at and I fail at. But it's something that's worth continuing over and over again because the world is not healed by reactivity, anxiety, and emotionality. The, the world is ultimately made whole uh, through calm presence. Oh, Rich, thank you. This has been so good. And I just want to say to the people that are listening, please go get this book. It's so good. Good and beautiful and kind, becoming whole in a fractured world. What a treat to talk with you, Rich. Uh, When I'm in New York City next, I want to go to your church. I want to have the experience of what's going on in that very uh, diverse community that uh, is obviously... um, welcoming many from many different backgrounds and many different places. I think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today, Rich. This was a real treat for me, Karen. Truthfully, just to have a conversation with you. Thanks so much, Rich. I really appreciate it. Karen, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. What a pleasure to talk to Pastor Rich Philotus, author of Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. Rich wisely speaks to the times we're living in. He writes, First, I want you to release any image of God that is anything less than pure, self-giving, abundant love. Second, choose whether you understand it or not to abide in that love, to dwell in it, to live in it. Opening ourselves to God's love doesn't just absolve us from guilt and shame. It transforms us into love. As Rich Volatis says, Abiding in his love is the greatest task of life. For more resources related to this program, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to Rich Volatis' book and to anything else mentioned today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you take time to give us a review or a thumbs up, and certainly we'd invite you to pass it on to your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Until next time.